Welcome to Orangi Cybersecurity's Ask a CISO podcast. Come with us as we take a deep dive behind the scenes with the world's top cybersecurity leaders to get insights into security issues you care about. Before we take off, please help us grow by taking just a few seconds to like and subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And leave us a review letting us know what you think of the podcast and how we can improve. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ask a CISO podcast powered by Harangi. I'm Jeremy Snyder, founder and CEO of Firetail, board member at Harangi, and I'll be presenting our podcast this week. Before I introduce our guest, please don't forget to take a second to like and subscribe or follow us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and help us grow. With me today is Christine Bejarosco. Christine has spent the past two decades conceptualizing and building capabilities as well as leading teams that defend against cyber threats. She's seen threats evolve together with technological advancement and adoption. She's passionate about building processes, technologies, and organizations that incorporate security into their design. Christine currently serves as the Chief Information Security Officer at WithSecure. Christine, thank you so much for joining and welcome to the Ask a CISO podcast. Thank you for having me. It's You've had a really long and I would say storied career. I know you've defended against threats in many parts of the world. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got started in cybersecurity. Yeah, well, um, that's an interesting story because when I graduated computer science 20 years ago, I first looked for software development jobs because that's what I expected when I had that course. And then I had a classmate and he told me that uh, he was an antivirus engineer trainee and he was trying to do reverse engineering of viruses so that they can create clean up for infected files. My first reaction was, there are jobs like that. So yeah. the rest is history because, of course, I joined the organization. I tried to do the training program, brushed up my assembly language skills, and I have been in the cybersecurity industry ever since. Wow. Assembly language skills. You really started with assembly? I I did. It was really 8086 assembly language, TASAM. So that's what we yeah. had then. Wow. And what was that like? I mean, because I think a lot of us, we hear about reverse engineering. We know it is a thing, but I certainly have never done anything like it. And I've never actually sat side by side with somebody who's doing reverse engineering. Talk us through that process a little bit. How does it work? Well, um, what we did then, it was really a debugger, uh, disassembler, decompiler. So it was a debugger that we used at that time. It was soft ice and only debug. I mean, those things, there's still some only debug, but we don't use that thing anymore nowadays. So we have more modern ones like um, EDA. But essentially, what reverse engineering was when it comes to this um, compiled code is since you don't have the source code anymore, then you essentially have the machine code, which when you put into the decompiler or the debugger, you can read the instructions. And then through those instructions, which is not source code, by the way, they are machine code, um, you will then understand what, for example, the malware was trying to do. Because the goal really was for us to understand what the malware was trying to do so that we could do the opposite of that, so that we could protect the to protect the um, people who got infected with that at the time. So uh, right. we needed to reverse what that malware has done to the system. And when you say what the malware has done to the system, we're talking things like what system calls did it make? What did it load into memory? What 
let's say file execution did it trigger all of those kinds of steps is that all, is all that of those think about all it? of those and more because at the time we need to remember okay. that those were still the time of file infectors the real viruses then okay. so there were really files that were safe because we were sharing executable okay. files then and then viruses just attached themselves to those files so we needed to find those files and then remove the viruses and since we reverse engineered the virus, we knew exactly how it would infect the file so that we could clean it up properly. And so is that when we think about, or if I think back and I remember hearing about things like virus signatures, are those signatures kind of the things that get added to other files to make them infected? Is that the right way to think about it? Well, you can think of it that way, that when they scan the file, um, these are the signatures of the viruses that really went into the file. So some of these viruses, they either attach themselves at the bottom of the file, some of them attach themselves to the top of the file, and then some of them found areas in between the files that were empty, and then they, they chopped okay. themselves off and put themselves in there. So we needed to find out where the viruses were, if this file even had those virus signatures so that we can take them away. So it sounds like virus really is kind of the right name for that type of... Absolutely, yeah. it was really and an effect guess, thing. Yeah. yeah, so I'm curious, right? So here we are, you know, 2023, as we record this podcast, how have viruses changed in your observation over these, you know, over these 20 years? Well, um, the name virus nowadays, it's very rare that we really see a file infector nowadays. So today, okay. usually these, um, we call them malware now, they are self-contained and they are like, it's like a single file is purely malicious. And um, okay. we don't really perform all of these cleanups anymore on a file level. We perform them on a system level. So, for example, they will add themselves into registry entries. They will try to put uh, persistence mechanisms into the systems. That's what we try to remove. So it's not about file. It becomes wider. Okay. And just one question out of pure personal curiosity, more than anything, okay. I bet some of our audience will have the same kind of curiosity around it. You mentioned the registry there, yeah. and when I hear registry, I, my mind immediately goes Windows yes. and goes back to some very bad experiences with Windows early in my career. Is Windows still kind of the primarily the primary target operating system? And those of us who think we're you know safer because we run Mac OS day to day or we're, we're running Linux day to day, are we really safer? Well, um, firstly, on the Windows, uh, when looking at market share of this general purpose operating system, and I'm, I'm using that term to separate them from the mobile phones, for instance. So sure. when it comes to general purpose operating system, workstations, for instance, there's still very wide usage of Windows. It's still the most prevalent ones in there. And usually threat actors, whenever it's very wide scale, then th those are the ones that they go after because of course they have a wider distribution, especially if they are financially motivated. But we have already seen quite a lot of threats so when it comes to Mac, when it comes to Linuxes, and nowadays, especially the ransomware threat actors, they do try to be as agnostic as possible on this because it maximizes the gains that they have. So no, yeah. it's definitely not, it doesn't make you safer if you go to other general purpose operating systems there are still threats that are in there and you do still need to employ protection capabilities. Got it. So those of us who are like, oh, I don't need antivirus, anti-malware because I'm running on Mac, we're really kind of kidding ourselves that there's no threats yeah. out there for us. There are. Yeah. 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 
Well, that is unfortunately the state of things, but uh, you know, I, I myself, I do run macOS, and I actually happen to run both in EDR and in anti-malware on the system, go. and mandate that for the whole organization. I, I'm curious, you know, over these 20 years, so we've seen the shift, let's say, from viruses to malware, but we're also in the middle of shifting a lot of, let's say, our software utilization from you know desktop applications to the cloud. Yeah. How has that changed things on the I guess, malware landscape, not so much the virus landscape. How has that changed things in your experience? So when it comes to the cloud, malware per se, as it works in the general purpose operating system, becomes a different story because a lot of the threats okay. that we see, for instance, are exploiting capabilities that are in the cloud. Um, let's say, for instance, crypto miners exploiting okay. resourcing in the clouds in order to mine for cryptocurrency because the cloud could provide as much resources as what what's offered for as long as the the organization who subscribed to it paid for that. So, and 20 years ago, if we think about security, there's no such thing as cloud security. So, because there's no such thing as the cloud, essentially. But, right, of course, over right. the past two decades, I mean, there has been a massive shift and massive explosion of these new technologies. And threats, I wouldn't just say malware because misconfigurations that were that's happening nowadays, as well as data leaks, these are now the threats that we are seeing. And they are coming out also because of the new technologies that we now have at our disposal. Yeah, and it's one, it's kind of an interesting thing that I've kind of wondered about a little bit. If I think back to, you know, I, I was, excuse me, a system administrator in 2000 to 2003. Mm. And I know we had some malware, sorry, some viruses, I guess is probably the right okay. word for them. Um, and you probably remember some of these yourself, or you might remember some of these. Um, I'd be dating myself a little bit, but if you remember, you know, Melissa and I love you and some of these kind of mass emailers. Yep. And I tended to think about them as annoying, yes, like super annoying. And they overwhelmed our exchange server and they shut down the message transfer agent a couple times and you know email was so critical to business back then still is of course but we all ran our own email servers and if you know if your email server was down that really meant that a lot of company external facing communication was down but it wasn't really let's say stealing information mm -hmm. from the organization yeah. And it wasn't kind of communicating with an outside service. You know, we hear about things like C2 command and control servers. And I think that's much much more of a newer concept than than back in those days. What have you seen? Because I, I, I get the feeling that malware today is, is much more malicious, so to speak. Like it's really looking to profit from your organization yeah. differently than just kind of shut you down. Is that is that right? What do, what do you see? Because I see, I know you see mass scale of this kind of stuff well, the, on a daily basis. Well, def definitely. And the, the evolution that um, I have seen, for instance, in the past 20 years has started with like, many of the threat actors just exploring this, um, exploring these capabilities. So, for instance, um, when banking went online and uh, suddenly we needed passwords in order or usernames and passwords to access our credentials, then threat actors started to experiment with phishing and different phishing threats. And they, were, they weren't in a massive scale. They weren't super organized. But today, you will see phishing like going on a massive scale. And they are selling these um, blobs and blobs of phish credentials. And today, threat actors are even specializing. So we see this, for instance, when it comes to the type of ransomware attacks that we are seeing that 
there are threat actors that are only creating ransomware code and doing technical support of all of those victims that have been um, organizations that have been compromised. And there are others that are the ones that are performing distribution. And still, there are others, um, for instance, whose main purpose is to compromise organization, create profiles of their network in order to sell those profiles to others who will perform further compromise. So as the businesses that we are having, the legitimate businesses that we are having have also evolved to become more specialized, apparently threat actors are also copying the same model because for them, it has worked really well. And ransomware yeah. as a threat is like more than five years old now. So it yeah. has been quite successful when it comes to yeah. how how they have monetized this and how they have evolved as as a business. Is ransomware kind of the number one thing that you know your company uh, helps customers fight? Is that the the main threat that people are worried about today or should be worried about? Well. I would say that it's one of the things. I wouldn't say it's number one because okay. there, there's a lot of um, the messages, for instance, when it comes to ransomware and making ensuring that your um, Active Directory is uh, as safe as you you can have it and as much as possible. If you can cloudify, for instance, your organization, some of these threats are um, going to be at the back burner. But there are still um, organizations that are suffering from the ransomware threat that we have seen. So for instance, our incident response teams, um, they have seen quite a bit of this, that whenever ransomware threat actors come in, the differences between different threat actors that perform different types of activities prior to the actual ransomware um, threat actor deploying the ransomware are actually quite different. So they, you can really see the profile that they have. But today, the good thing that we see in organizations that our incident responders respond to is that the threat is contained to fewer machines okay. than we have seen before. So like this, the spread of this ransomware um, encryption, for instance, of files is lesser. But then the question becomes okay. like, what were the files now or the data that they have exfiltrated? Because the, because the ransomware threat actors have also evolved to exploit more than just to to take and encrypt data, so they also expose this now and then they they yeah. put it out in in public and others shame the organizations, yeah. for instance, that are impacted. So it also depends on what they have seen then in the organization. Yeah, I've heard of the um, I think the double extortion is yes. the is yeah. the the business model exactly. that I've heard described to that. Yeah, but you said something there that I'm, I want to understand a little bit better. And you said that kind of the the volume of encryption is getting lower. Now, is that because organizations are getting better or is it because anti-malware is getting better or network segmentation or some of all of the above or what what's what's kind of helping in that cause? It's a little bit of all of the above because uh, for some that we have seen um, segmenting certain areas of the network, that was really helpful. Um, for instance, okay. and uh, it was helpful, uh, for instance, that some of these areas were isolated from where the active directory could be. And therefore, the, the blast radius of the impact was quite limited. Um, some of these uh, workstations, for instance, are also now a little bit harder to do elevated permissions. Um, they are more secure. Okay. So they also have like more security products that they have deployed in there, um, a little bit more than just the basic ones. 
and that has also helped like reduce the blast rages. So there are actually several cases where we have seen that um, the threat actor was kicked out of the organization, but they didn't get anything much of value, which was the organization got infected with ransomware, but they didn't pay the ransom, and then the threat actor got data that the organization didn't really think could compromise them. So that was that's good for them at least. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's great to hear. I'm curious in there, what do you do? Because I know you've been leading teams as well mm. for a long time. How do you train teams and talk to teams about, let's say, not getting complacent? Because that's one of the things I really worry about myself is, you know, we do our annual training exercise. Mm. And even we, we're, we're a small company, but we've just gone through our SOC 2 process. And as part of that, we did a lot of training and we did a lot of education and awareness. But then we all get busy, yeah. right? We all go and we do our day jobs and so on. And also we do this training typically once a year because that's what most compliance standards mandate yes. or require. Yeah. What are some of the tips and what are the, some of the things you've learned to, to kind of best practices in training teams and also best practices in making teams not fall asleep at the wheel, so to speak? So um, some of the things that I've tried to do at the moment, uh, well, it, it's a larger organization, so we have this concept of security champions. And um, okay. we try to use uh, the, the knowledge that we have to spread those out across the organizations through these individuals who are touch points, um, for instance, of the CISO office towards that organization. And whenever there are specific problems that we see or specific problems that they see, that there's an open communication on that. And then on that specific problem, we try to extract a data point. And um, for instance, let's say vulnerabilities. And there are certain areas that if, for example, we feel that, okay, the patch cadence is not really acceptable uh, when it comes to certain areas, we need to improve it. And so um, what is the data, uh, for instance, that would support that this is not acceptable? Because sometimes you, you can't just say that CISO says this is not acceptable and then we don't do it. So um, people will challenge that. And so when, when they end up challenging that, um, for instance, if the organization has not yet really experienced a breach yet, usually I try to grab um, information from external parties, those who have experienced a breach that could have had the same attack path as what we could have if this issue is not addressed. And I try to explain it in terms that this could be us if we don't address this. And now these are the problems that we are having in specific terms. And those are really like the data that we have internally. And nobody challenges it because why would you challenge facts? So um, right. so that, that helps people that open us up their eyes that, okay, um, we shouldn't be sleeping at the wheel. We need to be doing something yep. about it. And it, it's very important to get their, their buy-in at that point Otherwise, it just becomes CISO says so, and then they end up doing it. Yeah. 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 And, and this program of security champions, you know, if you if you talk to, let's say, a, a customer organization yeah. and you try to explain this concept to them, mm. the benefits are obvious. But how do they get started? Because I know that's something that a lot of organizations struggle with. It's like, OK, we are here. Mm. We want to get to here, but we don't know even the first step to take. So what do you usually recommend to them? When it comes to security champions, um, I've been in a fortunate stage where 
I work together with the um, the global leadership team. So since I'm part of the executive team, it helps because they you can just ask them that we need to have this in the organization. Um, who could be the ones from your organization to do it? But I do think that um, even without being part of the leadership team, I think people could could actually lay out the benefits of having um, the security champions in the organization and sell it as something that this is actually a two-way street. This is not just about um, CISO going towards uh, their organizations and telling them what to do. This is also about them having this fast track and going towards the security teams or the CISO office and saying that, hey, this is something that we need. Like, for example, um, the HR of the organization would actually say that, hey, I need to fast track this um, new payroll provider. And then you can evaluate yeah. them together and see um, what are the security requirements and how well do, do this payroll provider fit into that. So this is a two-way street that can actually help the organization fast track its security and target it to the areas that need it the most without assuming anything because these people are closest yeah. to the action. Yeah, that there's something in there that I've I've thought about a lot, which is that you know, if we really wanted to be truly truly secure mm. and have zero potential of getting breached, we pretty much have to shut down. Right? Yeah, like we, we pretty much <laughs> can't do anything digitally. <laughs> yes, but that's obviously no. not realistic, yeah. right? So everything we do, there's some level of mm. risk, and I think a lot of of what we do in cybersecurity is really about kind of like understanding and managing that yeah. risk and trying to minimize it to the the to the most reasonable level yeah. right like we don't we don't prevent email or we don't prevent email attachments why because they're super useful to the organization <laughs> but of course they present a risk yeah. so what can we do about it we install antivirus anti-malware scanners on our email servers and then on the machines where people are opening the attachments and we do security training and we do all these things to kind oh. of mitigate that risk so I'm curious as, as we're, you know, in 2023 as we are, and we see all this shift to the cloud, how do you think about managing the risk of external providers that you do start to engage with? Like that example you yeah. gave of a new uh, payroll provider. How do you think about assessing providers and managing risk around third parties? So you're definitely right. I mean, one of the biggest challenges that we have um, today is what is the risk that actually our third parties are bringing to us because of the data that is flowing from our organization towards theirs? And this is brought about, for example, by a lot of SaaS um, as well as other organizations uh, that actually ingest our data. And my take on this is to first take a step, take a step back and actually try to look at what type of data goes towards which organizations. Because firstly, I mean, not every data needs ironclad protection, but data, for instance, such as employee information, customer data, or company IPR, I mean, those are the stuff that would really need good security. And when we are talking about those things that would really need good security, then the filtering, for example, before signing in a vendor, then the filtering of those vendors would be quite important. That if you go down, for instance, to your top three vendors in your shortlist, then security becomes a really strong requirement. That, for instance, um, how do they handle access controls? Who has access to your data? Who Are they using subcontractors? 
how are they working with their subcontractors and what how are the accesses done are they encrypting the data at rest or in transit so the, there's a lot of these questions that need to be uh, standard for these types of organization yeah. and when do they delete your data because your data needs to be disposed after it's no longer required and when you communicate with them well at the very least there needs to be SSO from your organization yeah. towards them so they there would need to be some pretty strong requirements uh, when it comes to some data your organization has but for the others that are not really that strict I would say they can also be relaxed a little bit yeah understood SSO as a particular thing I just want to talk about for a second because one of the let's say one of the kind of debates that I hear from people in security is like we're going to we we will or we will not involve security in the design of new systems Mm. and you know I've spent some time working with random organizations but I've also spent some time working for cybersecurity companies and I always observed that when I was working for a cybersecurity company security by design was a much more integrated part of the process than the than in other companies and I know you know I'm personally a fan of it I think it's a great practice and I think you can eliminate a lot of risk already at the mm-hmm. design phase if you go down that path when you think again about the shift to the cloud and you think about what you can do with external vendors mm-hmm. as security by design SSO is one of those things that I think actually is there you know the design of how we as an organization are going to work with you as yeah. an organization this is a thing that connects us what are maybe some other things to think about in let's say bringing a security by design philosophy to the cloud or to the modern workspace well I'm also a big fan of um, Secure by Design. And um, to be honest, I I would go beyond the technologies even when it comes to Secure by Design. Because like whenever, in an organization, so when we build processes, like any of the processes that we follow, whether that's automated or not, like for instance, a lot of it can be automated when we're talking about um, when people code. But before they start coding or before they deploy, all of the tools that, for example, we have in software composition analysis, etc., they, for example, would perform threat modeling um, before they write, let's say, their code. And these are exactly the things that would need to be then part of the process if we want to think about how do you build software securely. Because, for example, in the cloud world, I mean, the frequency of how often we deploy code to production is quite staggering. I mean, this is on the level that we have never seen yep. 20 years ago. And it just it just yeah, keeps sure. on going out there. And the sources of this code is not just the thing that your engineers are writing. This can be open source code. This can be a proprietary code from somewhere else. And how secure are all of those when you build the package and then put them out into your production environment? So the processes would need to then be at the beginning. But beyond software, I would even dare say that this can still be part of processes, for example, in finance. When, mm-hmm. when, our, um, when our people in finance, for instance, uh, in accounts payables, they receive invoices externally, what is the process that they go, they go through when it comes to validating, when it comes to opening attachments, for instance, as you mentioned, is that process secure by design or is that a risky process? And my take on this is that if we build 
security into the processes themselves, it actually becomes a little bit more just a part of the process rather than this is an extra burden I have to do. That you add it afterwards, after the fact, and then people feel like, okay, here goes the security requirement once again. So I'm, I'm also a very big fan of Secure by Design, but I would actually go beyond even the software into the processes of yeah, the engineers, the finance people, HR during hiring, etc. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's such a great point. It, it is so, you know, that process that we bring to our work really influences everything that we do. And if we do, you know, go back a few steps in that process and we can, the earlier we can introduce some thinking around Absolutely. good practices and good policies, I think the better. Yeah. And we've actually had a couple of guests on the show talking about threat modeling. And I know for me, it was actually quite an eye opener. So I do encourage anybody to go out and check out those episodes as well. Um, I'm curious for you as a CISO, mm -hmm. right? So you run a cyber, you, you run security for a cybersecurity organization in the modern landscape that we're on. I'm sure you get asked a lot, what are, let's say, the, the technical or the technological threats that you kind of find yourself needing to like stay on top of or learn about? And how do you get yourself to keep learning and stay on top of things? Because the technologies are changing so fast. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And it, there's just too many things. Like, for example, if I if I look at, well, the, the daily dump of information that I would need to process from yeah. different news out there, I, I wouldn't be able to keep up. So my take on this is to start with um, the business, really, uh, today. That, for instance, um, in this business that I'm in, what are, what are the outcomes that this organization um, would like to accomplish? And from that, um, looking at the risks, what are the risks to this and what are the assets behind that? And then what are then the security outcomes that would need to be accomplished? So I work with this. Um, we, I, I try to be a little bit more attuned then to what our IT and R&D teams are doing. And um, by, by me, they just mean, not just me, but for example, the immediate team that I'm leading, because the closer we are to the daily events that are happening in the organization, as well as the technologies that they are using and where we are evolving, then those are the areas that we would really need to understand the most. And we need to become sparing partners with them. So they, mm -hmm. since we couldn't like spread and understand everything that's happening out there, we tried to focus into where we are heading towards as an organization because we're modernizing and there's quite a bit of technologies actually that are just shifting, changing, and we are also acquiring and adding it to our files. So we prioritize essentially. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so with that prioritization, do you have any recommendations on, let's say like reading or podcasts that you listen to, or, or let's say shows that you watch or places that you get information from on a regular basis? I'm actually, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of reading, uh, so I, I try to do that, um, like, for example, before I, I sleep at night, for instance. And um, I have an app called Feedly, and uh, okay. within Feedly, you can have, like, cybersecurity, different cybersecurity news, etc. And that's the starting point for latest whatever's happening out there. And through that, it links me to the podcast, to the, to the different videos, to the, to the webinars. And I also have like a bunch of webinar subscriptions that I have to admit I couldn't yep. keep up with because there's just too many. Yep. And uh, just too exactly. Much. And then play them maybe two times, two times the speed so that you, I could keep up. So, uh, but yes, um, it definitely helps to be always 
sort of like updated um, for as long as you can. So they, there's time, well, there's a lot of time for meetings, of course, but there's also time to be focused on some deep work to understand everything that you need to understand on certain scenarios. And then there's time to sort of like take a look at what's happening in the landscape if there are specific areas of interest. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm also curious, you know, you're a global organization. You see what your customers are yeah. facing all around the world. Do you see any difference in threats, you know, let's say between North America, Europe, Asia, South America, et cetera, or are we really in a digitized world where the threats are pretty are spread pretty equally around the world? There are differences, um, but the, the differences that I typically see or we typically see are um, usually in distribution. So, for instance, um, there could be there was a time that we saw um, mobile malware spreading only in Europe. But it, it started with um, it started with certain Nordic places, went down to the Netherlands, etc. But when it traveled to different areas, essentially, like when the trend moved, it didn't mean that it was like completely gone already from the areas where they started from. So they they sort of like just reduced the activities and then moved around. And we have seen quite a bit of this um, happening globally. Uh, of course, for example, like this. Um, this malware, for instance, that we have seen as well, uh, Ducktail, which is happening uh, okay. within uh, Facebook, for instance, and targeting corporate Facebook accounts. So it's heavily uh, exposed in areas where organizations use Facebook heavily. Like, for example, um, when I even went to the Philippines, it got validated because I realized when we chatted with some of the um, organizations out there that Apparently, there's a lot of organizations in the Philippines that have been exposed to that because, well, that's a country that uses a lot of, um, has a lot of Facebook visibility for different SMBs. So it, it okay. also depends on what then is, um, like how a certain area, how a certain geolocation interfaces with certain technologies, and if those are the technologies that are targeted by those threats. That reflects quite well it's... with the numbers. Yeah. Do you think it's like a chicken or egg problem where it's like either the, the, the malware is targeted at that area because they're using that technology? Or do you think it's, you know, you see the malware in that area because that technology is most common? Well, it, the technology usually comes first because they, this, okay. these threat actors, like one thing that they have consistently done, um, especially when they started being very financially motivated, is that they're, they're yeah. very opportunistic. And they're also very agile. Yeah. So whenever that's an area where it's heavily exposed to certain technologies, and that's something they can yeah. exploit and monetize from, then they would do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the things that I, I heard somebody say a while ago, and it's always stuck with me, which is, you know, hackers have automation too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Absolutely. You know, scanning to figure out okay what technology is in use and yeah. what should we target like that that's I, I have a personal experience on that um like i think more than five years ago i i was launching a website that had wordpress like my personal website okay. and then um yep. it's like less than an hour after it was out there i was yay a visitor but no it wasn't a visitor <laughs> it was a it was a scanner like probing for wordpress vulnerabilities so because of course i had already yeah. that platform and then they it now became a target. Yeah, I'm amazed that it took an hour. <laughs> we, you know, 
yeah, we work on API security and we just stood up some stuff in a lab. There, there's some very common um, open source sample API driven apps that you, that everybody can yeah. get. Um, and we just grabbed a few of those where we wanted to test out some of our own software on it. And we put it up in, in one of the cloud providers, one of the big cloud providers on a completely random IP address, no DNS name or record associated to it. So literally just with the IP address. Yeah. And we saw traffic to it within about 10 oh, minutes. Oh, wow. It's, it's, it's faster and now. <laughs> it's even faster yeah. now. Yes. So yeah, that, that question about hackers having automation. Oh, yeah. I'm curious with it, you know, just a couple more questions that we've got time for today. But one of them that I, I you know, have to ask, given where we are in the modern technological landscape is, what role do you see AI having in your work, you know, either on the defense side or are there concerns that you have from the threat actor side on how AI is going to become relevant and, you know, if not already? Well, it's definitely both because uh, okay. when it comes to AI and threat actors trying to exploit it, I mean, there's a big buzz, of course, because of um, various large language models that we now have out there. And we have also pushed out, for example, from WinSecure this, um, how, for instance, you can converse with ChatGPT when it comes to creating very believable um, uh, phishing uh, campaigns, for instance. Mm. And definitely on the side of how threat actors could potentially use it, I mean, the, the use cases are endless. And usually there are, there are many times as well in the past that threat actors would surprise you on how they would be using certain technologies and that's definitely coming in the horizon. And of course, there are a lot of open LLMs out there and that's available to anyone, um, both mm -hmm. good and bad and neutral actors alike. So anyone is definitely free to use this for whatever purpose that they would have. And there's a lot of data points that they can draw from in order to feed into this um, open source models as well. Then for mm. for the side of the, um, the cybersecurity defenders then, I mean, it's definitely very valuable to embrace these models and figure, figure out how this can fit, for instance, into your organizations and support your cybersecurity initiatives I mean, coming from, for instance, starting with policies even, that uh, how many policies okay. does your organization have? And if you have so many, do people even understand anymore what they need to do? I mean, wouldn't it be easier if there's just a chat that they can send the information to? It's like, can I do this? Um, I'm trying to build this system. Um, what are the considerations I need to do? And then that will just pull from all of the different policies that you have in the organization it makes someone's, like a developer's job, for instance, easier if they can just query that. So from that level, going down to, can you feed, for instance, um, into a certain LLM model, the different type of code that you have in order to let it find vulnerabilities, for instance. So they, there are definitely, yeah. like, the use cases are as much as, as many as what you could conceptualize um, for this. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I think we hear about these large language models and we also we often hear them called generative yes. AI. And yeah. so we think about what they can generate, but they can also classify and analyze. Oh, they can. Yeah, absolutely. And there are definitely use cases around that. And I know from, you know, I spent some time with an organization that had a very fast growing managed detection and response mm -hmm. business. 
And I know that that group was always just flooded with data, you know, just too many log files, too many yeah. alerts coming in. And I think about, you know, could you use AI in a situation like that where you could reduce the noise Absolutely. and try to find the signal yeah. a little bit more accurately? And, it, and AI is the, definitely very helpful with that. Yeah. yeah, awesome. The research that Christine mentioned is available on the WithSecure website. I just found it while we were chatting. AI-generated text could increase people's exposures to threat. You can find that on WithSecure.com. I do encourage any of our listeners to go check that out afterwards. So, Christine, this has been a great conversation. I, I really you. only have one last conversation for you because I know we're up against time, which is, so you've been at this for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I myself have been in IT for pretty much the same amount of time, if not even maybe a little bit longer. But I'm curious, what what's the advice you give to young people who are either or considering starting a career in cybersecurity or those who are maybe thinking about changing into a career in cybersecurity? Mm. You know, you've gone through a great career progression of your own all the way up to chief information security officer. What's some of the advice that you would give to people or let's say some of the encouragement you would give them to consider, you know, jumping into this career pool? Path. All right. Well, um, if you're the type of person who feels like you, you would really want to do something meaningful, something, something that helps people, something that helps the world even. So that's how I felt in my 20s, definitely. Um, I think this can be a very rewarding field to have. And for instance, there's, there's two major areas. Like you can be as technical as you want to be. You can be a world-class technical expert here if you want you can also go towards the track of leadership. So they, there are definitely various tracks in cybersecurity. So for the very technical bit, I mean, they, there are two major areas. You can go defensive or you can go for the more consultative or what typically has been called offensive security. And when it comes to um, a bit more the leadership track, because security is now really part of our digital landscape and it needs to be, otherwise, yeah. I don't see how our digital future or our future, so to speak, because our physical and digital space is now blending. And um, I don't see how that can be sustainable without security, without cybersecurity. So on that front, cybersecurity, we need to understand that cybersecurity is about supporting the organization where you are a part of. Usually in corporate environments, it's about supporting the business and therefore it helps to also learn about the business. It's very good to have a technical background, which helps you, it helps you conceptualize and make decisions even up down the road. But it's definitely good to understand the business that you're a part of, because there will be times where you will be asked to make compromises for the business. And therefore your role becomes, how do you then manage the risks that are opened up because of yeah. those compromises? And it's not an ideal situation, but that's then the time where then the experience that you have would be tested as well as the understanding that you have for the business so that you can help give the right advices as well. But I would say that um, definitely this is a field that is very rewarding to be here. And um, it, well, I'm still here after 20 years, so definitely good to be working in here. So Jeremy definitely knows this. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And Christine, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your, your wealth of knowledge and your experiences with us and with our audience today. Thank you so much for coming on the Ask a CISO podcast. Thank you for having me as well. 
Awesome. Once again, our guest has been Christine Pajarasco, Chief Information Security Officer at With Secure. And that is it for today's episode. To those listening, thank you for tuning in. Please do rate, review, subscribe, share, all that good stuff. And this is Jeremy Snyder signing off for the Ask a CISO podcast. See you next time. Thank you.